It's time to talk Sixers. Ben down the lane. Oh, baby. Ben Simmons between the legs, and then he rocks the rim. Here on the broadcast, the official podcast of Sixers.com. Here's a steal by Covington. A three ball is in the air. And good. Robert Covington pours in another three. Now, here's today's episode. Yes, it is time. Finally, at long last, to begin the second round of the playoffs. And fittingly enough for the 76ers, their longest standing rival is the team they draw for the Eastern Conference semifinals. Brian Seltzer saying, what's up? Great to be talking to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We're on Monday night at 8 o'clock. The Sixers step into a second round competition in the postseason for the first time since 2012. It was in that season six years ago the Sixers had that epic and memorable seven game series against the Boston Celtics and as it turns out that is precisely the opponent that the 76ers will go up against this year in round number two coming up on this edition of the podcast we're going to do a little bit of offense defense we'll hear from 76ers assistant coach Billy Lang who oversees the offense and Sixers assistant coach Lloyd Pierce who takes control of the defense and we'll also chat with Mark D'Amico he is my counterpart from Celtics.com to get more insights and perspective on what's going on with the C's before we dive into this edition of the pod reminders that to subscribe to our feed you can do so a couple of different ways head to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Type in Sixers Podcast Network, and that should take you to where you need to go. Round number two, 76ers, Boston Celtics. Are you happy it turned out this way? I'll be honest with you. I 100% am (laughs) totally happy. It ended up this way, that it's the Sixers and the Celtics, not the Sixers and the Bucks. With all due respect to Milwaukee, Would have been fun. They have a total star in Giannis Antetokounmpo, but this is rekindling some stuff. You know, none of these guys were around, even back in 2012, for that heated seven-game series that Boston took uh, eventually to move on to the Eastern Conference Finals. But if you love the sport and you love tradition and rivalries, why wouldn't you want to see this right now? Yes, I know the Sixers are starting on the road. Home court advantage would have been great if it ended up being the Sixers and the Bucks, But something that Dario Scharch said the other day over the weekend stood out. You want to kind of prove yourself against an elite franchise, regardless of who Boston does or doesn't have at this stage of the season right now. We know their injury issues have been well documented. Now, wouldn't it be something for the Sixers to advance to the conference finals for the first time since 2001, getting past their bitter arch-nemesis Boston to do so? couple numbers, no two teams in the entire history of the NBA have played each other more times than the 76ers and the Celtics in the playoffs. They've done so 100 times with the Sixers winning 46 of those games. This is going to be the 20th postseason series all-time between the Sixers and the Seas. The Sixers are 7-12. and in those series. Regular season, Sixers went 1-3 versus Boston. They got off to a great start in the game that was played in London on January the 11th, but Boston clamped down in the second half to win that game, and then the Sixers finally broke through for a victory over the Celtics a week later at TD Garden, 89-80 to on January the 18th. No Gordon Hayward for the Celtics, no Kyrie Irving. Some other key role players aren't available as well. We'll get into that more with Mark D'Amico in just a few moments. But first, let's do a little offense-defense. 
and we'll flip it around, why don't we? Because offense always gets the nod before defense. We'll go defense-offense and start off with a conversation with 76ers assistant coach Lloyd Pierce. He's been on Brett Brown's staff since day number one. He's in charge of the defense. And we caught up after practice on Sunday at the Sixers training complex and took a look at the Celtics. Lloyd, a team with which the 76ers are intimately familiar with the Boston Celtics, your second-round opponents. Let's take a look through the defensive lens. What do they present offensively that could create challenges? I think anytime you think of the Celtics, you automatically go to Coach Stevens and the uh, tremendous job he's done there the past few years of, of implementing a system. They're a great uh, out-of-timeout, after-free-throw team just with the execution the creativity of the different sets that they run really and to to maximize their players potentials putting them in positions where they can be effective and they can uh, excel and and get create opportunities for other guys or for themselves so it's trying to figure out how to slow down their uh their team offensive execution and, and we need to do that with the team effort defensively did the way they operate change at all amidst the injuries that they endured over the course of this season? No, and I think when you go back to what I was just speaking on with the team execution, it's it's a system, it's a it's a style, it's a um, it's a belief of how they want to play, and they're just putting their players in the proper positions. When you lose a player, and you lose a player such as Kyrie or Gordon Hayward, you're losing their talent, and you're losing where Coach Stevens has put those guys in, in, in opportune situations. All he's doing now is he's putting Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown and Al Horford and Terry Rozier. He's putting those guys in positions where they can be effective. It's not like they're trying to recreate Kyrie with Terry Rozier. They're just using Terry Rozier to maximize what he does. So we have to guard the guys that are on the floor. and We have to try and take away what we think are some of their weaknesses or some of their strengths and put them in um, positions where it's highlighting their weaknesses, areas they, they, they're not as effective. But they're a good offensive team. They play the ball. Play, play together, move the ball well, uh, they share the ball, they create three-point shots and opportunities, I think, to the, to the, to the lever where they're third in the league. Um, so we'll have our hands full. Impressed with what Rozier has done, it seems like it was just the other day that we were out in Salt Lake City or Las Vegas for summer league, and there he was trying to scratch his way through and look at him now, yeah, pretty impressive. I think, um, you know, this is, this is in any sport, it's then the next man up and um, – Here's a guy who plays with a chip on his shoulder and he plays with a great amount of tenacity. He comes from Louisville where they full court press. They're great break you down off the dribble offensive players. You're seeing that in uh, in the kid out in Utah. And, and so you're seeing a lot of different elements of his game start to come to the forefront. And it's more about the opportunity. Uh, he's a well-conditioned. He's a great athlete. He's got a lot of quickness. He shoots the ball well. I think 39, 40% from three off the dribble and catch and shoot. He's just getting more of an opportunity to showcase who he is. So kudos to him and good for him on, on excelling with the opportunity, but we've got to find ways to slow him down as well. Last thing, Al Horford doesn't always seem to have a lot of flash to his game, but what are some of the things that he does that creates pressure? You know, he's just uh, he's just in the right spot at the right time. He understands how to play the game, and, and, and unbelievable. It's hard to see a guy who, who can go from four or five spot with that type of basketball IQ of just understanding the game. In some areas, he's, he's one of the leading bigs in terms of assists, so he can uh, facilitate for their team offensively. And then you just see him in pick-and-pop situations where he's capable at 43% to knock down a three-point shot. And then you can take him down to the post, whether it's against his own matchup or when they get cross-matched. 
And just a patient, methodical, knows what he wants to do down there, score. Um, but he's always in the right spot at the right time, both offensively and defensively. He anchors their team. Great character, great basketball IQ. Uh, and and in a lot of ways, they go as he goes. And you saw that last night in their game seven. You know, he got them going with 24, 26 points, and they needed every bit of it. But it's just a, uh, it's a leadership role. He's a guy that's seasoned and been in the playoffs and, with some of their main guys being down, he's the guy that's going to have to anchor them. Lloyd, thank you very much. You're welcome. Jumping over to the offensive end of the court, Billy Lang oversees that for the 76ers. Depending on how you like your statistics, the 76ers, number one in offense, the first round of the playoffs. What's been going well on that side of the ball? Our players have been consistent in the things that they were doing over the last you know, two, three months of the season. I mean, we've really become a better offensive team since Christmas and really took some big leaps after the all-star break and the coaching staff led by coach Brown, we haven't adjusted much. So there's some familiarity. Now you get into these situations where there's a lot of tension and a lot of pressure. They're not looking around wondering what we're doing. Hey, we're going to pass the ball. We're going to put a heavy emphasis on screening. We're going to run the same play calls. We're going to emphasize the same things from a transition standpoint. And I think when you get into these pressure situations, comfortability allows these guys to execute. I feel like every time we talk, we talk about a man named Ben Simmons. I feel like Ben forces us to talk about him. What did you learn based on how he handled those five games? He responded well to things that Miami did to try to deter him from being Ben Simmons. You know, in game two in particular, they pressured him. They tried to be really physical with him. And then in games three, four, and five, he adjusted by taking off versus their pressure and going, you know, reading how they were going to space him maybe in the half court. Um, learning how to play off the ball a little bit and still engage himself in our offense. And his screen setting off the ball got a lot better because if they weren't going to pay attention to him off the ball, he basically becomes like what we would call a naked screener. There's no one cloaked on him. So he's able to free guys up. And we thought he did a really good job in those areas. You think that Joel started to get into a little bit more of rhythm from what we saw in game five versus the Heat? I mean, there's two rhythms that he has to work himself into. Um, So to answer your question, I would say yes. But I think it's still going to have to – we still have to give it some time as we head into this Boston series. There's one of just like not having played games, right, which anyone would have to find a way to get back in rhythm. I mean, he missed, I think it was nine or ten. He missed a good portion of what we did. Then he has to get adjusted to the mask, right? So it would be one thing if he like got hurt, sat out of game, put the mask on. Okay, now I just have the mask. Instead, he's got the conditioning factor, the feel factor, the rhythm factor, and then he's got this – Black Panther mask on his face that he's trying to play with out there, and those things take time. But Joel's force offensively, just whether it's offensive rebound or screening or running or you know ducking guys in and getting the ball in the paint, like we need those things, and it's going to really show how much we need him in this series against Boston because he's really a mismatch for us. We're talking a couple hours before you guys take off to head up north, and we're in this very nice, well-lit conference room right. just off the court in the training complex. i got to feel like you guys have been putting in a lot of hours, a lot of meals, a lot of cups of coffee in this right. space over the last four days since you guys advanced. Uh, green tea slightly healthier, so All I'd right. like to think that we were doing that. We, we've been in this room a lot. Um, you know, going through the playoffs for the first time, this has been an amazing experience for me. I try to take a lot of notes. You know that, Brian. I'm an avid note-taker, and, and – One of the things that I think about for my own career is just the importance of having a staff. Our video department, like these guys really run this show. Their ability led by Tyler Lashbrook, um, who's our head video coordinator and actually does great work with our guys on the floor as well in terms of player development. They have everything ready. You know, series ends. 
our regular season ends against Milwaukee. It's like on my laptop is anything that I've asked for in terms of preparation for Miami. As we beat Miami, we now have Milwaukee and Boston. You you pop in, and Coach Brown's got everything he needs. I, these guys are so underrated in terms of their importance. I mean, yes, they're not. They might not be sitting on the front of the bench and getting the fanfare, but they're value to us in all season really but in a situation like this where the preparation is like on you and it's instantaneous it can't be overstated it looks probably a lot of people not getting a lot of sleep this time of the season but i would put probably tyler at the uh the top of that list Uh, tyler if he sleeps it's probably during the meetings he's just figured out a way to do it with his eyes open and a laptop in front of him but it is the truth you know one of the things is we also have these intern guys uh remy Njai and dj mackley and and dwayne jones who played at st joe's and has now been a part of our staff for over a year these guys give tyler the support he needs it's a real team and, and they don't just do video i mean it's not it's on-court preparation with our players it's scouting report type stuff it's organizing the coaches for what they need it's side projects I mean these are just the video projects that most teams are doing not to mention the side ones we give them where we're like all right let's look at every one of Ben Simmons's assists versus Boston or you know defensive adjustments that Boston might have made versus us I mean it's crazy man how much these guys have to do and they're really valuable to us last thing Boston's defense top rated in the regular season what makes them so good on that side you know it's really this is not like rocket science i'm going to tell you they have talent and your defense is as good as your ability to stop the basketball i've always believed that at every level i've ever coached if you have guys that can guard the basketball one-on-one you have a great chance of being a great defensive team i don't care what level you're at because one it's hard to just score one-on-one against a guy that can move his feet and play. And then, two, the way teams most likely score is they break you down, they force a second defender to get involved in a play, and now somebody else is open or it leads to a lot of scrambling or rotations. And, you know, the way we pass the ball, we're going to find open shots versus that type of weak defense. The strength of Boston's defense is they know they got guys that can guard one-on-one. They minimize their help. This is going to be a real challenge for us. I mean, now we're a way better team offensively than we were when we played these guys in, Jan- in mid-January, but they have consistently been a very good defensive team as time gone on. You start putting out there Brown and Tatum, Smart, Rozier, the, the toughness of Morris, Horford, and his experience and ability to guard three positions. It's going to be a real test for us. Should be fun to watch. Always fun talking with Billy Lang. Thanks, man. You got it, Brian. Now that we've got some particulars about X's and O's as it pertains to the 76ers on defense and offense, let's shift gears and shine the spotlight on the Boston Celtics. See what's going on in Celtics land, especially after a grinded out victory in Game 7 in the Eastern Conference quarterfinals over the Milwaukee Bucks. Very quick turnaround for the Celtics and a quick turnaround for a guy who does what I do essentially, and then some. For Celtics.com, his name is Mark D'Amico. He's been covering the team for quite some time. Mark, give us the vibe and the pulse of Celtics Nation coming off of Game 7 and that win and heading to the series against the Sixers. Uh, Relief. That's the (laughs) pulse. Relief. Getting through last night, I think everyone was just geared up for that. and uh, Obviously, an awesome Game 7. That was a ton of fun to, to watch, to be at, I'm sure, for the players to play in. Um, great game. And, you know, even last night, some people were asking about the Sixers and it was like, the players were just meant to like, you know, we got to get through tonight and just, you know, celebrate a little bit tonight that we won this game seven. A lot of people forget that although the Celtics were in the conference finals last year, a lot of these guys didn't really play key roles. So it's kind of similar 
to the Sixers team in, in winning that series and winning a game seven. That's a big deal for Terry Rozier, a Jason Tatum, who's a rookie, a Jalen Brown, who really only played about 10 to 15 minutes per game last season during the postseason. It's a big deal for those guys to be able to come out and do what they did last night. So today, a feeling of relief, a feeling uh, of, uh, yes, okay, we got to turn the page and start to prepare. And uh, that's what they did today through a film session. I was thinking about it. It's interesting that you use the word relief because, yes, there's the name and stature that comes with the Boston Celtics, and there were expectations for the franchise for you guys coming into the season. But literally after night one, so many things got reset. But still, it's that umbrella of this the Celtics. It's a team that's expected to win, which has got to be a little bit of a different dynamic than even what the Sixers are going through, which, yes, there's young talent like Boston has as well. But the Sixers... They hadn't been on this stage before where the Celtics have been viewed as a perennial contender in recent years. Yeah, and that's I think that's the, you know, being involved in the team on a daily basis and seeing what the team goes through on a daily basis, as you can probably say from the Sixers' perspective, you can see all of the adversity and everything that the team has gone through to understand why it is where it is and how it got to where it is. A lot of people around the country don't necessarily understand that fact that I just said a couple moments ago that a lot of the the players on this Celtics team they weren't key contributors last season when that uh, that team got to the Eastern Conference Finals and somehow snagged a game in Cleveland without Isaiah Thomas you know a lot of those guys are gone right Al Horford's still here but pretty much everyone else are new to playing 30 plus minutes in a playoff game Um, so in a lot of ways these teams are dissimilar in where they've been in the last few seasons, but they're very similar in terms of where they are right now, in terms of youth, in terms of success, and in terms of what the future holds. I really, you know, you've got on, on the Philadelphia side of the ball, you've got Amir Johnson, who was here in Boston last season. He's experienced it. J.J. Redick has experienced it in the playoffs when he was out in uh, Los Angeles with the Clippers. And on Boston's side of the ball, it's really only Al Horford. And then, to an extent, Aaron Baines. But Aaron Baines didn't even really play much uh, for those Spurs teams back in the day when he got a ring. Even Marcus Morris. Like, this is the first time that Marcus Morris won a playoff series. So, all of these guys are new to this. And I think the people around the country don't necessarily understand that uh, because they see what the Celtics have done the last few seasons. It's funny, just looking at some of the top of the rotation guys that Brad Stevens has used in the playoffs so far, I'm looking at the lineup and I'm like, this is, with the exception of Horford and Morris, essentially like the greatest hits of the Celtics Summer League team from the last couple of years when we've seen each <laughs> yep. other in Salt Lake City and Las Vegas. It's amazing how much and how far some of these guys have come in such a short period of time. Yeah, and even you look at Shemi Ojale. I mean, he started the last, uh, I believe it was the last two games for Boston in that seven-game series against Milwaukee. And, yeah, you don't see a lot from him in the stat sheet, but that guy is built like a brick wall. When, when I'm telling you this, you, know, you and I have walked past and seen a bunch of players in the NBA. I have never seen someone as jacked as Shemi Ojale. <laughs> he, he, he literally looks like he could walk into the NFL and play inside linebacker or defensive end. He is huge. Um, he's strong, but what he really brings to the table is his agility. Um, so he came into the lineup during that last game. You know, you know, everyone expects everything from Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Terry Rozier, et cetera, et cetera. But Shemi Ojale steps in. The Celtics don't win that series without Shemi Ojale playing defense against Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, and I, I really believe that 
you know, Giannis and, and Ben Simmons are kind of similar in terms of their body makeup and their, their athleticism taking the ball off the dribble. I think Shemi is going to see some time against Simmons during this series as well. So don't just look at Jalen Brown, who's right now listed as doubtful for game one with that right hamstring strain. Um, and don't just look at Jason Tatum, but Shemi Ojale could play a factor as well. It was amazing that the Bucks got nothing on the fast break in Game 7, and that's a big part, as you said, of what the Sixers do with Simmons. I was going to ask you that. I mean, that's that's the fun thing, it seems like, about the playoffs, is you learn a little bit here and there, and just because the matchups are extended over a seven-game series, you can uncover things like that, and it seemed like it's the Celtics stumbled on something with him the last couple of games of that series against Milwaukee. Yeah, and, and you just touched on the transition play. Milwaukee, you know, that team plays, you know, if I was coaching that team, they'd be taking 85, 90 shots a game. They really <laughs> only take 70 to 75. They play much slower than you would think. But they are still an incredibly efficient transition team, just like the 76ers. So uh, from Boston's perspective, I actually do think that that playing that series in seven games against a team with Chris Middleton and Giannis Antetokounmpo taking the ball out in transition, I think that may have potentially prepared Boston a little bit mentally for what they need to bring to the table in this series because Philadelphia, is, as you know, is the top transition team in the NBA. And every player who spoke to the media, ta- media today on Boston's side of the ball mentioned that. Brad Stevens mentioned that. That is clearly a point of emphasis um, so I think that just having that experience in the last series against Milwaukee may actually come around and help Boston in this series as opposed to you know playing a team that plays slow and loves to play in the half court. Um, the Seas have a little bit of experience in that coming out of the last round. Something that some guys in the Sixers were talking about the last couple of days, J.J. Redick being one of them, was how as the season went along for the Sixers, expectations were reset. At first it was at the beginning of the year we want to make the playoffs, and then it became uh, maybe we can get to 50 wins, and then after that possibly home court advantage. With everything that Boston went through this season, the injuries thinking foremost, of course, of Gordon Hayward and then Kyrie Irving, was there ever a reset of expectations or just a different type of tone that was used, whether it was from the coaching staff or amongst the players? How did they handle all of that adversity? You know, it's funny, while, while you're rattling off that list of what J.J. Redick said in terms of the expectations getting higher and higher, I'm just thinking of in Boston, it was literally the exact opposite. <laughs> they were getting lower and lower throughout the season with every single blow. And even guys, you know, the, Daniel Tice is out for the rest of the season with a meniscus tear. If that guy could play in this series, he would be a huge contributor because he's an agile Six foot ten, six foot eleven player who can shoot on the perimeter. He would be a huge asset for Boston. So losing him as well, and then Marcus Smart just came back after missing six weeks. Um, so Boston's expectations have been going down. And this, I'm talking about outside the locker room. Inside the locker room, that team still believes that it can compete, and I, I think they've got good reason in believing so. I, I, I've said this before the playoffs started. I think every series in the Eastern Conference, and even going into this next round where now we've got the entire bracket set for this semifinals round, I think any team can win. I mean, any team can come out of the East depending on how each individual team plays in each individual series. Um, but it's, it's a make-or-miss league. We've heard that over and over uh, over the last you know 20 years. That's been the mantra of the NBA, and it, it's true during the playoffs and especially in the East when so many teams are on similar uh, playing levels, um, 
if one team gets hot for a series, they can knock that other team out, and then you never know what's going to happen in a conference final setting. I think it's probably really easy for people in the media or fans to get excited and hyped up about a playoff series between longtime rivals like the 76ers and the Celtics. Did you get any vibe from the players today? Is this something that has them a little bit more juiced up, knowing the tradition that's surrounding these teams? Uh, I don't know if it's gotten to that level yet. I think that if we see a couple of competitive games here um, at the onset, and maybe if we go you know, down to Philadelphia tied 1-1, or we come back to Boston tied 2-2, I think then that stuff might start to creep up. But, you know, as we talked about at the start, I mean, the Celtics' minds just are getting over Milwaukee. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they're all too wrapped up right now and just, uh, you know, anything about this next series other than what's going to go on between the lines. Um, there was one question asked today to Marcus Morris about, you know, these two cities just faced off against each other in the Super Bowl, right? Uh, and then, you know, the, the question then turned into, you know, back in the day when the Celtics and Sixers used to go at it, and he's like, listen, man, like, I'm just trying to concentrate on what the game is tomorrow. You know, I've got so much on my mind trying to get over what we just did and trying to prepare for what we've now got to do. Um, that's what these players are thinking about. They're thinking about the game. Um, but as I said, I, I think if this is a competitive series – that winds up, you know, splitting through the first uh, three to four games, then we can see some of that stuff creep up once once the Celtics get to breathe a little bit more. Uh, has it, how's it been on, on uh, Philadelphia's end? Have they been talking about that, the mystique at all about this matchup? Well, you know, it's funny. It's like you think of something like, you know, the Boston Strangler, and none of these guys essentially <laughs> were alive at that point right. in time, uh, you know, literally. Uh, I mean, I think the one thing that stood out from the Sixers' end is that Brett Brown being a, a native New Englander, you know, that, that adds a little bit more nostalgia to it, and he's like, yeah. you've been there for his his pregame media availabilities, you know, he's he talks about. I think he literally, and it's great, um, and it's awesome because you can tell how much he appreciates it. He, he tells the same, I think, exact story just about every single time the Sixers are up here. It's like I go to this sandwich shop after shoot around where I used to go when I was at Boston University, and I used to come down to the Boston Garden with my dad and take pictures on my Polaroid camera of uh, Julia serving the Sixers playing the Boston Celt, you know, all that stuff. So I think yep. that that Brett's background adds a little bit to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, tell me a little bit about what you've seen from Jason Tatum recently. Yeah, you know, um, I thought Jason Tatum's Game 7 performance um, during which he scored 20 points, I, I thought that that was his best all-around game of the series. Uh, I, I think when you look at Ben Simmons as a rookie, he was so consistent during that first round. It was incredible to me to watch. Um, just to see what he could do in so many aspects of the game. Tatum had some great, great moments during those first six games, but he also had some very questionable moments. It was kind of like a roller coaster with him rolling through those first six games, but then during game seven, it seemed like he was much more consistent. Um, and, you know, it says a lot to me when you see a rookie that can rise to the occasion in a game seven. And, and I'm not just saying that because I, I work for the Celtics. Uh, I, I, if Ben Simmons did that in a game seven, I'd say the exact same thing about him. When, it, when a young guy can put forth his best effort when the lights are shining the brightest, I think that says a lot about that player's makeup mentally. Uh, but, yeah, through the first six games of the series, um, it was a little bit of a roller coaster with Jason where he had some, some few brief good moments, but a lot of, a lot of low moments where he wasn't necessarily 
making a great decision. What Brad Stevens always wants is someone to be a quick decision maker. When the ball reaches his hands, he wants that player to either shoot it, drive it, or pass it. And a lot of times, Jason Tatum was catching the ball and thinking a little bit too much and kind of getting lost in no man's land. Um, I, I think we call that in the NBA a ball stopper. Uh, but he, he was that at times during the, that series, uh, but he was not that during Game 7. And hopefully, for Boston, from Boston's perspective, that'll carry on into this series too. Al Horford had a massive Game 7. How does he stir the uh, drink for the Celtics on both ends of the court? I think in the last series, and this is going to the very first moments of game one, the Celtics clearly wanted to go to him in the post. They wanted to make Giannis Antetokounmpo work on him down low. And for the first couple of games, it worked. And then again, during game seven, it worked. And most of his uh, offensive points were scored in the paint during game seven. I think during this series, most of what they're going to lean on for Al Horford is defending Ben Simmons. I think most of his... Um, energy is going to be dedicated toward that. Not to say that he's not going to contribute offensively, but I think he's going to be much more of a distributor offensively and much less of a post presence, um, kind of going back to the traditional offense that the Celtics operated upon uh, throughout the regular season. They want to go through him at the elbows um, and you know at the center of the court, at the top of the key. They want to operate through him kind of as a point forward Um not like a Ben Simmons type of point forward, but, you know, the ball is just being passed to him and he can make decisions, not necessarily off the dribble. But I think, yeah, in this series, the Seas are going to rely heavily upon him to be the guy um, to defend Ben Simmons uh, for the majority of the defensive possessions. We've referenced his name a couple times. You get to be around him on a regular basis. What stands out to you the most about how Brad Stevens manages a team and why has he been able to lift the Celtics to the heights that he has in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, it, it's all about getting the best out of every player. I mean, who did I just mention? Shemi Ojale, right? Right. Who is Shemi, <laughs> who is Shemi Ojale? Right? Right. The Celtics selected him in the second round this year. He's a rookie. He didn't play all that much during the regular season. He was probably, I'd say, ninth, 10th, 11th on the depth chart. Um, no one knew about this guy, yet there you are in a playoff series in game six, and Shemi Ojale steps into the starting lineup and he's ready to go. That, I think, is indicative of what Brad Stevens brings to the table as a coach. He gets the best out of every player on the roster. Another example, Shane Larkin, right? Shane Larkin was out of the NBA last year. Shane Larkin has been passed on by multiple teams that had an opportunity to bring him in for you know multiple seasons. He only stuck around for one season on those previous three or four teams. This season, he, he was a major contributor for the Celtics, and I think that the way that he played is going to get him cemented in the NBA next season with a long-term contract. Um, so, again, it, Brad Stevens just gets the best out of all of his players. He's a great game planner. We all know that, and what he does in the game with his adjustments, um, his out-of-timeout plays, etc. But I think his greatest aspect is bringing the best out of every player. Who was Isaiah Thomas before he got to the Celtics? Right. And what happened after he was, that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He, he, he could score. You knew that he could do that. But he turned into a star in Boston because Brad Stevens brought the best out of him. And he does Jay Crowder. I mean, Jonas Drepko, you can go down the list of all of the guys that had their best seasons while they were in Boston. And I think it's because of Brad Stevens. Feels like this series is not going to disappoint. Anyone else 76ers fans should be looking out for any other storylines on the Celtics side before we wrap this uh, up? 
I think the biggest storyline for the Celtics right now going into the series is what's going to be the situation with Jalen Brown. I, I don't think the Celtics can compete at a high level in this series without him. Um, as I said before, it sounds like he's doubtful for game one. But the good news is that all of the testing came back negative. So it seems like that hamstring actually isn't, you know, it's not going to debilitate him for the majority of the season or the series, excuse me. But my wonder is when he does get back on the court, if it's Monday night, if it's Thursday night, even if it's Saturday night, is he playing at 100%? Because if he's not playing at 100% and he can't defend at the level that the Celtics need him to defend at, especially with the spacing that the Sixers put out on the floor, um, and if he can't shoot the ball, drive the ball the way the Celtics need him to on offense, I don't think the Celtics have a shot. So they need him to be healthy. I think everyone in this series needs to keep their eyes on Jalen Brown, first and foremost, when he can play. And then secondly, when he does play, what's he look like? Great perspective from Mark D'Amico from the Boston Celtics. Thanks so much, man. All right. Anytime. Great stuff from Mark D'Amico from Celtics.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark, M-A-R-C underscore D'Amico, D-A-M-I-C-O, to stay up to date on everything going on with the Boston Celtics in this series. Celtics Digital Department does a terrific job, and thanks to Mark for taking the time. Also, big thanks to uh, Lloyd Pierce and Billy Lang for a couple of brief minutes talking about the state of things defensively and offensively for the 76ers, and thank you, as always, for uh, listening to the pod. We'll have a rewind edition of the podcast coming your way on Tuesday, so be on the lookout for that in your feed. And more to come from the 76ers series against the Boston Celtics as the week rolls along. See you.